I want to invite you to open your Bible to Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. Uh, it's the first book of the New Testament. No shame in using table of contents. And our passage is going to be Matthew chapter 8. And we have a longer passage. It's going to be verse 23 all the way through chapter 9, verse 8. And we're in our series called King and Kingdom. You may notice, hey, wait, why didn't we do Matthew 5 through 7? If you've been paying attention, last week we were in Matthew 4, Jesus' temptation. We're skipping 5 through 7, but we will come back. Matthew uh, divides, he has five what are called teaching or discourse sections throughout the gospel where he brings together a, a specific topic. So we will come back to those teachings later. Uh, so we'll be in the Sermon on the Mount later. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 and following. And when Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? O oh, you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? And when he came to the other side, to the country of the the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tomb, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs were feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. This is the word of God for the people of God. Am I on? Oh, yes, I am. Hi. Good morning. My name is Jacob Beach. I'm one of the pastors here at Scarlet City Church. This morning, like Pastor Jay said, we'll be continuing our series in the book of Matthew. Last week, we talked about Jesus being tempted in the desert. And this week, we're going to jump forward to Matthew 8 and 9. I think it's interesting that it was so windy this morning. I don't know. I assume everyone experienced the wind. 
Uh, and we're talking a little bit about storms and wind and waves this morning. So, I mean, I'm not God. I didn't plan that, but it's certainly interesting. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are in the middle of Matthew, uh, in the middle of uh, Matthew's gospel, particularly looking at chapters 4 through 16. These chapters give an account of Jesus' public ministry in and around the country, the area of the country of Israel, known as Galilee, the northern region. Now, the chapters previous to this section, as Jay also mentioned, we see Jesus teaching the scriptures in a large chunk. He's teaching about God. He's teaching uh, about who God is, about how God's people are uh, supposed to live in light of the coming kingdom. And while he's doing this, while he's doing these teachings, he's revealing his authority, his authority to interpret and teach the scriptures. And he displays that authority by teaching about how God's people ought to think, feel, and act. And it's noteworthy here to recognize that the recipients of these teachings in those chapters hear it differently. They hear Jesus' teachings differently than they had other teachings before. And that was because that no one ever spoke like this man. No one had ever displayed this kind of unique authority in a teaching setting. And that gives way to chapters 8 and 9 where we are today. This section contains a selection of Jesus' actions and miracles throughout his travels around the countryside. These miracles are a further display of his authority. They give evidence to the unique power and ability, his command over things that no human being had ever displayed before. So let's explore these three stories that Pastor Jay just read for us, and we're going to ask two different questions of each of these three stories. We're going to ask, what does Jesus show power and authority over? That's the first question. And how does he use that power and authority? Those questions should be on the screen. So let's look at these three passages. Let's start first with the calming of the storm. This is Matthew 8, 23 through 27. Now, Jesus had just spent the day teaching to a large crowd and healing the sick. And so he and the disciples decide to go across the sea to another place. And Jesus decides to take a little nap, okay? And, and this isn't like a multiple day journey. You know, this isn't the odyssey. They're taking like a one or two hour drive to another area, okay? And Jesus kind of drifts off to sleep. And I think all of us have that friend or maybe that spouse in particular that you know as soon as you get into the car, they're going to be out, okay, like a light. Like a light. And Jesus was that guy, okay? Jesus, let's be honest, he was taking some time, okay? He'd been putting in work all day long, and he deserved to take a little nap. So Jesus is sleeping, okay, sleeping in the back of the boat. And while they're out there, this chaotic storm blows in, Columbus, Ohio style, and it's not just choppy waters, right? This is a serious storm, wind and waves, and the boat is rocking. They're starting to take on water, and I imagine this is a very dangerous scene, maybe a deadliest catch type situation. And the boat's starting to fill up a little bit. Jesus doesn't lift a finger. He doesn't even lift an eyelid, in fact, and they go to him, and they say, Jesus, wake up. Do you not care that the ship is going down? Save us. We're sinking. We're going to die. And Jesus awakes, and before he does anything about the storm or about the 
incoming water into the boat, he questions them. He says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? And this sort of feels like a slight, right? It feels like he's burning them. But it's quite gentle. It's quite gentle, in fact. He isn't angry that they're anxious. He questions why they don't recognize him as the only one who does have the power and authority to keep them safe. So he gets up, he rebukes the wind and the waves, and immediately there's a great calm. And the disciples marvel at this. They're astounded, they're impressed, they're even a little bit scared. And this isn't normal, right? This man commands the very wind and the sea, and it obeys him. Whose man is this? What sort of man is this? What man can display such power and authority? Jesus uses the storm to reveal himself to the disciples in a new and fresh way. A way that could only happen, a way that could only happen in the context of a dangerous threat, like a storm. Now, when I was a freshman in college, one of my good friends was on the women's soccer team, and I had met a few of her teammates through a Bible study that we were in, and their power was revealed to me in the context of a dangerous situation. Our campus ministry was putting on a little flag football tournament, and me and some of my roommates decided to get in on it, and our first game was against the women's soccer uh, flag football team. And this is a playful game, you know, and especially me being a young and foolish male, I figured that we could easily take care of them. Now, early on in the game, this woman named Amanda, she catches a pass and she starts running down the field and I'm playing defense. All, my only job is to tear off a flag. Okay, I just got to, as she runs past, I just got to tear the flag off. And she's running up the field and all of a sudden it's just me and her. It's just me and her. She puts a little like, <clears throat> she puts a little, a little shimmy on me. And what happens? She's still running, but I'm on the ground. She broke my cankles. What she did was she displayed a power over the physical realm that I had never before seen or expected. <laughs> now, Jesus here, he displays his power and authority over the physical creation, the natural world. And what does he do with that power? He doesn't dangle the disciples over the danger to make them sweat, but instead he uses his power and authority to bring peace in the midst of chaos. He brings comfort that is understood only in the face of threat and danger. And how often do we ourselves feel like the disciples here? Living in a world that is filled with chaos and strife, some of us, uh, some of us feel the touches of that, feel the pain of that, some of which, uh, and some of us may just feel as, as though it's right around the next corner. We live through seasons where we don't have enough to get by, whether it's money, resources, emotional strength, or even just patience. We feel as though life is juking us, and we're falling down as it rushes past us. It's in this place that the disciples encounter Jesus. No one had ever spoken like this man. 
No one had ever displayed this type of control and command over nature itself. Here's a blank piece of paper. He uses his power and authority to bring peace and calm in the midst of dangerous circumstances. Jesus knows that the disciples will face more danger to come. He knows that following him is not safe. Surgeon General's warning, following Jesus may have adverse adverse effects. But Jesus shows that not only is a unique power present when he is around, but he intends to use it to bring about peace. But sometimes that peace feels far away. It feels like it's asleep in the back of the boat. But we call Jesus a deliverer. He delivers us out of danger. That's what he uses his power for. And that's what happens when we live in the midst of dangerous circumstances and chaos. Jesus is the voice that brings stillness in the midst of the storm. This is a unique power and authority that has never been seen before. A man that commands the very wind and waves. So hold on to that, hold on to that story as we continue to ask the same question of Jesus in the rest of these stories. What is he showing his unique power and authority over, and how does he choose to use that power and authority? Let's look at Matthew 8, 28 through 34. Here we have two crazed, demon-possessed men who confront Jesus and those traveling with him on the road. And they, speaking through the men, recognize Jesus when they see him. They call him Son of God. What do you, what have you to do with us, O Son of God, they say. And in doing so, it's interesting, they actually reveal something. They show their cards. This is a title usually reserved for those who have a saving faith in Jesus. But it's also used by Satan when Jesus is being tempted, which we talked about last week. It is a recognition of his power and authority, an authority which they do not accept or recognize. But nevertheless, they realize that this is someone unique, someone with power. And they know that at the time of the final judgment, which is soon to come, that God will defeat evil in totality. And so they're afraid. They're afraid that Jesus is going to jam them up right now before the time has come. And they plead with him. They beg him. If you're going to exercise us from these men, then you have to send us somewhere. What about, uh, you know, what about the herd of pigs over there? And Jesus speaks but a single word. He says, go. Go. And at that word of command, they leave the men and they go into the pigs. And it's the behavior of the pigs in the physical world that reveals what Jesus has done in the spiritual world. There's no indication in this story that a darker and wispy ghost-like feature, you know, kind of flows out of their mouths and drifts over into the pigs. It's only Jesus' word of command that they say, go. And the pigs immediately respond by rushing, stampeding down an embankment and into the sea, drowning themselves. It's a bit of a harrowing picture. There's no mention of the humaneness of this situation, of the loss of pigs. However, it's clear that the human subjects of the possession took precedence 
over that of the pigs. And these forces of evil operating in these men were tormentors. They were oppressors. They alienated these men. These men were living under the control of these demons. They were literally living in a graveyard. They were terrorizing anyone who would pass by. And the power over them was a deadly power. The goal being destruction and fear. People were afraid to even pass by this road. These powers were depriving people of their identity and of their self-control. And what does Jesus do with his word of authority and power? He makes the unclean clean. He takes those who are under oppression and he gives them freedom. He breaks up and disintegrates the dominion that the demonic spirits had over these men and even over the locals. No one spoke like this man, Jesus. And the response of the herdmen, or the, the herdsmen and the local populace is fear and frustration over the power displayed by Jesus. Jesus was not a comfortable person to be around all the time. They aren't thankful for the deliverance from the unclean spirits. They're frustrated that Jesus killed their pigs. The animals were more important to the people than those who actually recovered their humanity. Jesus here shows the authority that he has over the spiritual realm, specifically over the evil powers of oppression. And how often do we feel as though that we're unclean, that we're alienated, that we're set apart for the wrong reason? How often do we feel as though that there are some forces that are above our control and dominate us? And at the same time, at the same time we feel those feelings, we can also feel frustrated at Jesus coming onto the scene of our lives and messing up our situation. Sure, I was living in sin, Jesus, but I had my pigs. I had a good thing going with the pigs. Did you really have to deliver me at the expense of the pigs? And I think each one of us here today would want that type of deliverance that's described here. We would want a greater power to come into our lives and remove the negative, oppressive circumstances that torment us. But what is it going to cost? Will I have to give up something? What will I lose to gain this supposed freedom? I think we, like those in the city, are often afraid of what Jesus might do to us. He has power. He has authority. It's not like anything we've experienced before. But we fear the unknown. We fear what we cannot control. If this king comes into my life, what am I going to have to give up? What will a lifetime of following Jesus look like? And is it worth it? Now, some of you know that I regularly see a chiropractor. Now, all of you know. And whether or not you believe in uh, chiropractic medicine, yeah, I said medicine, I'm a believer, okay? For the past eight years or so, I've been prone to back issues. Maybe once or twice a year, I'll throw my back out doing something really amazing like cutting my toenails or picking up an infant. Just really crazy stuff. But my chiropractor recently, who I just started seeing, uh, has given me new life, okay? And more than new life, he's given me a new lifestyle, okay, of stretching and specific muscle building techniques, okay? 
Now, I can't move like I used to, right? I can't move like I did when I was 17. I can't live the same way. So my chiropractor has given me these daily exercises to strengthen particular muscles that help my back stay right. Now, I don't like them, okay? I don't like doing them. I don't want to do them. But when I do them, I experience a completely different life. I can get out of my bed. I can go to the bathroom without crawling. I can live an active lifestyle. I can carry heavy things like a single bag of groceries or a backpack with up to three books in it. Okay? And I see similarities to my new back lifestyle in this passage. There are lifestyle choices that are made when I decide to pursue healthiness. There are things that I need to do. There's other things that I need to not do. And when the power of Jesus breaks the oppression of sin and evil in our lives, sometimes we're going to lose out on some of our pigs. We're going to often very slowly and gradually change our lifestyle to reflect the authority and power that Jesus has displayed in our lives. The freedom that Jesus purchases for us by breaking the ultimate power of sin enables us to live how we were meant to live. And make no mistake, there is a great cost for this health and freedom. And in this passage, it shows the authority that Jesus has over those spiritual powers, specifically over the evil powers of oppression. And what does he do with it? He breaks the power of spiritual oppression. Okay, so hold on to that as well from our second story as we look at our final passage, the final story. And then we'll tie everything together as we close. Matthew chapter 9, 1 through 8. So Jesus and the disciples get into another boat, which I don't know if at this point you feel more comfortable getting into a boat with Jesus or less comfortable, like not this again, but Either way, they get into a boat, and they cross the sea, and they cross over to the city of Capernaum. And while they're there, a group brings to Jesus a paralytic. He sees the faith of these men carrying him and of the paralytic himself, and right off the bat, he says, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Now, in this Culture, things like disease, things like paralysis were thought to be closely related to specific sinful living. If you had a disease, it must be the resulting punishment of something that you did. If you were paralyzed, it must be because that you had done something wrong or perhaps your family before your birth had done something wrong. However, Jesus does not make that connection here. Neither does he make that connection anywhere. But this proclamation is not a throwaway line. It's spoken to real doubts, and it brought real encouragement to this man. But in declaring this forgiveness, the scribes, it says, who were the official Jewish religious teachers and representatives of the you know, official religion and whatnot, they take offense to this. They say, you can't just go about forgiving sins and whatnot. Now, to effectively forgive one's sins, that's not an easy thing to do. But similar to the passage that we just covered, the exorcism, there were no marked signs of that healing. 
of the human heart and soul. However, to tell a paralyzed man to get up and walk, that would be a significant sign. That would be a significant display. So Jesus sets it up like this. If I have the authority to heal the human body, if I could command this paralyzed man to get up and walk, then would you also believe that I am effective in forgiving this man's sins? So I tell you, do it. Get up, walk, pick up your bed, go home. And the paralyzed man rises and he goes home, walking on his formerly paralyzed legs. And I imagine he does it with a bit of swagger too, like, what now, scribes? No one spoke like this man, Jesus. This case, this story, this situation is about more than just a man receiving forgiveness of sins and a new lease on life and health. It's also about the authority of the forgiver and the healer. Jesus himself has special authority. He acts as an earthly extension of God himself in heaven. And as this divine God-man, he uses his authority to bring about healing and restoration to both body and soul. The Bible story, the, in, the entire story of the Bible, teaches that sickness and disease, that pain and suffering and pollution and death, all of these things are a result of the presence of sin in this world. When sin entered the world as a curse upon creation for rebelling against God, all of creation, the human race included, was contaminated by that sin. Death and sickness, both physical and spiritual, reign where life was previously created. The human existence is not experienced apart from, that, from those effects of the curse. Pain, conflict, disease, death. And when Jesus steps onto the scene, like in this story, he's making a proclamation. He's saying, in my kingdom, death and disease, sin and suffering will be no more. My kingdom is one marked by restoration and life. And because he is the divine son, because he is God in the flesh, because he is Emmanuel, he is demonstrating that he has the power and the authority to forgive sins. And moreover, he is coming to bring restoration to the world that is polluted and corrupted by sin itself. And what is it that connects us to that restoration and healing? It's faith. Jesus points out that the reason that this man's sins are forgiven is because of faithfulness, a belief in who he is and what he can do. When we come to Jesus by faith, we're offered forgiveness, restoration, and life. We're invited to be what we were created to be. I have a friend that I went to grad school with. His name was Taylor, and we would play basketball together and whatnot. And one day we were playing basketball outside. It was a particularly warm day, and so he took his shirt off to play. And this is already an issue, okay, because nobody wants to guard some sweaty person without their shirt on. But I noticed there was something on his upper back, okay? It looked like a 
maybe a tattoo in white ink or something. It was very faded. You could barely read it. And I asked him what it was, and he kind of shrugged it off a little sheepishly. He's like, no, nothing, nothing. And there's no better way to get me interested in something, to want to nose into your business, than pretending like something is nothing. So I dug deeper, and I started examining his back like a dermatologist on the look for moles. And what I found was a John Mayer quote. I don't even remember what it was. I texted him this week uh, asking him what was it, and he was like, no. (laughs) But it was something bad. It was probably like, one day I'll fly, or uh, my body is a wonderland, you know? (laughs) Whatever, okay? It doesn't matter what the quote was. It kind of does. It kind of does. All right, it's fine. John Mayer's fine. Okay. But he told me, okay, he told me that when he was 19, he was really into John Mayer, like, obvi. (laughs) But he got this tattoo on his upper back, and now that he's in his late 20s, he wanted to get it taken off, okay? Now, poorly chosen John Mayer tattoos aside, what Taylor needed was a specialist. He needed someone that could remove from him something that he had no power to remove himself. He needed someone with a unique power and ability to take away something that marked him. No matter how much he could have tried, changing his lifestyle, changing his diet, he wouldn't have been able to make that tattoo go away. Jesus is the only one who has the power and authority over humanity's sick condition. And he's the only one who intends to use that power to forgive sins and bring about the healing and restoration that all creation and all people need. That makes his kingdom and his kingship different and unique. So what ties these three passages together? What's the through line that runs through these stories that we looked at today? And even through Matthew's gospel concerning Jesus' miracles here. Jesus uses the storm to reveal himself to his disciples as powerful over the physical world, a a revelation that could only happen within the context of a dangerous threat. And what does he deliver? He delivers peace in the midst of chaos. Jesus uses the demon-possessed men on the road to reveal himself to his followers as powerful over the spiritual realm of evil. Jesus brings deliverance from sin and evil forces, but at the expense of some selfish wants and desires. Jesus uses the healing of the paralytic's body and soul to reveal himself as powerful over the fallen human condition. Jesus brings restoration and healing to humanity, but it's not fully realized until the resurrection. Following Jesus is not safe. It's not uneventful or easy all of the time. Following Jesus is trusting him in the midst of chaos, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of sickness. And the difference between Jesus and any other king that we could give our allegiance to is not only does he have the power to calm the storm and to heal the sick, but he also has the power to use That brokenness that we experience in this world to bring people new and fresh 
experiences of His grace. It's been a hard year for my family. And there have been times where I've looked around and I've wondered, Jesus, do you not care that we're perishing? Do you not see that the boat is sinking? If you truly cared for me the way that I think that you should, why don't my legs work? Why does it feel as though I'm harassed by Satan and his demons? Tormenting, bringing anxiety and envy and exhaustion. And maybe you have felt that before and maybe you're feeling it right now. Maybe you're walking through it right now. But Jesus breaks into our lives and he says, I do care. I do care more than you could ever imagine. I have chosen to display my grace, not despite the brokenness in this world that we experience, but through the brokenness in this world that we experience. Following Jesus doesn't mean that there won't be storms or there won't be oppression or sickness, but it means that he intends to use these circumstances to display his matchless power, authority, love, and mercy. Amen? And we we are in the middle of these seasons of waiting for deliverance, waiting for healing, waiting for restitution, for restoration, for peace. It's hard to see what Jesus could possibly have to do with it. But he doesn't just allow the storms to blow in and leave us with nothing. He reminds us that he is the only true and sure salvation. He is the only one who has the power and authority to overcome. Only by leaning on him can we truly endure the storms. Only he has the peace and joy to offer us in the midst of persecution and torment. Only by leaning on him can we see and learn and grow in the midst of sickness. And sometimes it's only through the brokenness that we get to experience the miraculous power and love that Jesus has to offer. You wouldn't know that Jesus was a healer unless you got sick. You wouldn't know that Jesus was a provider until you needed provision. You wouldn't know that Jesus was a comforter until you had gotten your heart broken. You wouldn't know that Jesus was a deliverer until you were jammed up. You wouldn't know that Jesus had made a way until you had no other way to go. And through these hard seasons of life, we receive that revelation, that understanding of who Jesus truly is. And if you're in one of those seasons right now, like so many of us are, I'm here to tell you that he didn't bring you into this to utterly destroy you. He didn't bring you all this way to snuff out your faith now. He didn't bring you here to leave you in darkness. Somebody in here needs to hear that today. I need to hear that today. That he will never leave you. That he will never forsake you. That he will never turn his back on you. That he's the king who knows and is concerned with every aspect of his people. And he intends to use his position of power and authority to bring about peace, deliverance, and restoration to his people. Make no mistake that his kingdom is coming. He's already made the pronouncement of it and initiated it when he died on the cross for his people and resurrected three days later victorious over death. 
And until then, until he returns, we live in a divided and broken world. We know who the king is. We know who has the power. And we know what he intends to do with it. But ultimate and total deliverance and healing comes only with the resurrection when Jesus returns. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. It's Revelation 21. But until then, we can take heart. We can be encouraged to know that Jesus sees us. He knows our every want and need. And he offers us a real experience and understanding of peace, deliverance, and healing. It's not only for the future, but it's for now. So I invite you this morning, come to the king. Come to the king who uniquely has the power and authority over creation, over the spiritual realm, over the human condition. Come to the king who brings peace and calm in the middle of dangerous circumstances, who breaks the powers of spiritual oppression, and who brings restoration and healing to his people. Come worship that king. Come pledge allegiance to that king. Let that king be the Lord of your life in the midst of uncertain times. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, I ask that you would, in the midst of trying and difficult circumstances, that you would continue to bring us peace, you would be gracious to us, that you would be merciful to us because we need it badly. This life is hard. This life is difficult. There's a lot of pain and brokenness and destruction in this world. And Lord, you're the only one who has the power and authority to bestow restoration and healing, love and grace and peace. I ask you to be with us because we need it. In your name we pray, amen.